Would you join with me in prayer? Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for your word that never changes, for your character that never changes. Thank you, Lord. And I pray that you fill us right now with your Holy Spirit as we open up your word. I pray that you open our hearts up to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Sarah asked an interesting question in youth group this week. She said, how does it make you feel to know that God never changes? How does that make you feel? Do you feel happy? Is that frightening? Is it comforting? Kind of depends on where you're at with the Lord, right? I mean, if you're doing well with the Lord, if you're walking with the Lord, the fact that he's not going to change is comforting. It's nice to know the ground is not going to give out underneath your feet. If you're standing against God, the fact that he's not going to change might be a little scary. Last week, as we started looking at the book of Jonah, we suggested that there's also the the specific context you find yourself in that might decide some of that. Because we know that both Joel and Jonah, both of whom were prophesying at the same time, right? Both Joel and Jonah knew that God never changes, and both of them knew Psalm 103, that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. They both knew that. And they both knew that that truth is the same yesterday as it is today and as it will be tomorrow. They knew that. But how does that make you feel to know that? I mean, it has a lot to do with whether God is showing that unchanging grace toward you, which is great, right? Or if he's expecting us to show that unchanging grace toward people that clearly don't deserve God's unmerited favor, right? I want you to reevaluate that sentence for a sec. They don't deserve what they didn't merit. It can be difficult because we know that Joel was prophesying about the end times, the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Thunder, lightning, boom. And he was scared of it. He, it, it shocked him to his core and he was praying that, that God's mercy would save people. Jonah was called to preach to Nineveh, called to preach repentance to God's people's enemies. And it galled him to think that they might somehow get forgiven. They don't want to see that happen. Don't, don't misunderstand me. There is a time for justice. There is a time, even Jesus says, to, to shake off the dust and say, and we're done with that. But the core of Christianity, we don't ever want that, right? Isn't it? There is a time that people should get their just desserts. There's a time where we might have to shake off the dust and say, I'm done with you. But as Christians, shouldn't that be something we never want to see? We don't ever want to cheer when someone gets theirs. If the core of the gospel message is that Jesus is saying, you know what? I'll take what's yours so that you never get what's yours. I'll take it onto me so that you don't get your just desserts. And we praise God for that. How hypocritical would it be for me to praise God that I don't get justice done all over me and get smoted if I say, I really want Christy smoted. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. For the people at home, no, I don't want Christy smoked. But how hypocritical would that be? I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. 
Joel knew that God's just wrath, his righteous justice, was coming. And he hoped, he hoped that it would be swayed by people's repentance. Jonah knew that God's just wrath, his righteous justice, was coming. And he feared that it would be swayed by people's repentance. Fundamental different perception. Hopefully you've got your Bibles open to Jonah. Let's go back into Jonah here, chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh. And we talked about this last week. Um, And there will be a map shortly appearing. We talked about this last week. If you'll remember that uh, Jonah is sitting in Jerusalem and he's being told to go 700... I'll do it. There you go. 700 miles to the northeast, to Nineveh, to go preach to them. In fact, if you remember the, the nuance that our writer gives, and our writer, the writer of Jonah is very nuanced, very poetical. He, he measures his words very, very carefully. Isn't just go to the great city of Nineveh. It's get up right now and go to the great city of Nineveh. Preach against it because it's wickedness. And even that's an interesting word, more like it's, it's calamity. Some natural disaster is coming upon me based is coming upon them based on the stuff that they've done. This this calamity has come up before me. So I want you to stop what you're doing right now. And Jonah stops what he's doing. And I want you to get up, and Jonah gets up. And I want you to go seven hundred miles to the northeast. And Jonah goes two thousand miles. Two thousand miles. Make it go 2,000 miles. Ah! Okay. If you'll see from the small picture. 2,000 miles to the... There you go. 2,000 miles west to Spain, which is not Nineveh, right? He does. He gets up immediately and goes. He just does exactly the opposite of what God tells him to do. We're told he went... He headed for Tarshish. He went down to the port of Joppa. He found a ship bound for Tarshish. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish. Tarshish, 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 Tarshish. Because the writer's saying, I want it to be extremely clear, this was not an accident. This is Jonah saying, if I plan it through and if I work really hard, I can thwart God's grace. I can, I can take out the people God is trying to save. And I can run away from God. I want you to think about that for a second. Think about being so sure of what you believe, being so sure that you are right and good and pure and true, that when you actually hear about God saying, I want you to show grace and love and embrace that person, that you might be offended at the concept. How hard would that be? As we said last week, this is not a children's story. It's not a story about how God was angry with Jonah, so he sent a big old whale to swallow him as punishment. Every part of that synopsis is wrong. That's not what this is about. This is a story that's all about God's love, his grace toward people who arguably do not deserve it, including the prophet who thought he could decide who could deserve it or not. Throughout this book, God calls Jonah. Jonah grumbly does his own thing, And yet God still uses him to accomplish his will and draw people to salvation. 
against Jonah's wishes, contrary to Jonah, in spite of Jonah. So Jonah went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. But God wasn't done with Jonah yet. And I love this because we're told that just like he had called Jonah to go to Nineveh with some tough love, God says, I'm going to show Jonah some tough love now. So then the Lord sent, and actually the, the, in, in Hebrew, I love this, Yahweh himself hurled. It's, I love the poetry of it. It's not just the Lord sent. Nope. Yahweh hurled a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Literally, the ship thought it was going to fall apart. I love that. I'm telling you, the author knows what he's doing. That's poetry, man. The ship thought it was going to break apart. It's a clever way to draw your attention. Look, and everybody goes, oh, that's kind of clever. I like that turn of phrase. The ship thought. You go, right. You know why? Because the ship is smarter than Jonah. It's a clever way of pointing out that the, the ship got it. Jonah, the man of God, is oblivious to what he should be doing. He's utterly pointless. Interview a boat sometime, and you will find they're not very bright. At least not very talkative. But the Bible says that every once in a while, when the people of God can be foolish, even a prophet sometimes, sometimes a ship is even more on top. Sometimes a donkey, sometimes the rocks and trees, sometimes a fish or a vine or a worm, every once in a while, even an inanimate object is wiser than we are by comparison because at least they're not getting it wrong. They're winning because they're not currently walking in the wrong direction, which means that somehow the inanimate object is still closer to the finish line than you are. And if you go, no, really? Do a Bible study sometime. In fact, on Friday night, in some ways... It was put, Mark makes a dichotomy between the Pharisees getting it wrong and even the demons that knew who Jesus was. I don't want to do worse at this than they are. Even the demons believe and tremble. I love what comes next, though. This is a testament to just how sovereign God is. All the sailors were afraid, and each of them cried out to his own God. Because at least they were as smart as the ship, right? They knew that they were in danger and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship that's 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 how they make their money right for them to throw the cargo into the sea tells you just how serious the situation is they're like this is literally a last ditch effort the very last thing that we do before glub glub drown is throw out all the cargo that justified the trip but I don't know if I've ever mentioned this, how huge a word but is. It's this gigantic, tiny little word that everything... They're like, call to our gods, throw out the cargo. But the man of God, Jonah, had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The sailors knew they were going to drown. The ship knew it was going to sink. The prophet of God 
is oblivious. Can you, can you smell the irony here? How can you be so on tap with the Lord and yet so utterly dense to what reality is? You're supposed to be thinking that this is ridiculous as you read this. You're supposed to be going, wait, even the ship knew? And Jonah's asleep. Seriously? You're supposed to think it's ridiculous. But everything about the book of Jonah is designed to make you go, he's so dumb. Wait, what am I doing? He doesn't seem to follow what God is called. Wait, what am I doing? He wants those people to fry. Wait, don't I have people? Wait, it even ends on a question that isn't answered, doesn't it? Leaving the reader to answer it. Shouldn't, isn't this how we should be? Is anybody going to answer that? Good question. Everything about this story is designed to make you go, ha, 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 oh, wait. Exactly, like that. Like, just like what Brian just did. When we're so clueless, we have to stop and say, wait a minute, why am I clueless here? I think it's interesting, because even at, in, in, in uh, youth group we talked about this. There was a similar storm on a similar body of water in a similar boat centuries later where Jesus was similarly asleep in the stern, right? It's very, very, very similar. What's the difference? Jonah's asleep because he was clueless about what God could do. Jesus is asleep because he wasn't. Jesus was wisely unconcerned because he was walking with the Lord. He knew what's going on. Jonah's foolishly unconcerned because he wasn't walking with the Lord. He didn't know what was going on. So Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. And the captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Which again is really interesting because that's almost exactly what the disciples say to Jesus. And then in Mark, the disciples look at Jesus and Jesus in the stern asleep. And the disciples woke him up and said, teacher, don't you care if you drown? Though it never seemed to dawn on them to call to their God. Just wake Jesus up. It's bothering me that this isn't bothering you more. Why is this not bothering you more? Because if you care about something, you'll worry about it, won't you? If you care, you'll worry. And if you're not worried, you must not care. That's how I read Philippians. Paul says, be anxious about everything. Pray about everything because everything should stress you way out. And if you cared at all, you'd be on your knees going, <laughs> all the time. Don't you care if we drown? Jesus got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, shut up. We had a whole sermon about that. Go back and look at that one. Literally, zip it. What? And immediately, the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And he said to the disciples, why were you guys afraid? Do you still have no faith? Why are you so fearful of the storm instead of trusting the God who hurled it? I don't know, what storms are you afraid of in life? What stresses you out? What seems bigger than the God who's sovereign over it? Anyway. Jonah. Capron says to Jonah, how can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe he can take notice of us and we won't perish. Who knows? 
who knows, maybe that'll work. Remind yourselves of this later. In a, in a couple of chapters, this comes up again. This theme of pagans going, nobody's given us any hope. I mean, I wish there was some kind of man of God here to give us some sort of hope, like Joel, but Joel's busy giving hope elsewhere. So we have to go, who knows? Who knows? Maybe, maybe God might do something. Who knows? Because nobody's here telling them to have any hope. Now, it's also interesting that the wording used here is almost exactly the wording that God used before. Get up right now and speak. Get up right now and go speak to Nineveh because I'm aware of their calamity. Get up right now and go speak. And the captain goes, get up right now and go speak to your God. Who knows? Maybe. This is what you call a wake-up call in every sense of the term, right? I'm waking you up, but I'm also going, are you seriously doing nothing? Your whole job, literally your whole job, is to speak for God to people and to speak to God. And you're doing neither. Who's the better example of faith and righteousness here? Is it, is it the unbelieving pagans who jump to prayer even if it's to the wrong gods? Or is it the righteous man who categorically resists ever praying because he is actively running from God? Who's being more righteous? The one sprinting in the other direction from God or the guys shambling around vaguely in the direction of at least praying? I submit to you, if you're actively going the wrong direction, even if you knew where the finish line was and they don't, they're winning. I don't want to get I don't want to get beaten in my race of faith by people who don't even know where the finish line is. We have no indication that Jonah prays here. We have no indication that he's prayed at all yet. And the sailors said to each other, "Come on, let's cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity." I, same word that was used back in verse 2, calamity. This horrible disaster that's going on. Just let's cast lots cuz there's nobody here who could possibly tell us what's going on or why any of this might be happening. None of us has some sort of inline to God. So let's roll dice. I love how God says, Jonah, get up right now and speak to the people of Nineveh about their calamity. And he says, no. So God goes, okay. Jonah, get up right now, and let's try speaking to your calamity. Because I'm thinking we can get you to speak about a calamity somewhere. We just need to stretch those muscles. And if you won't preach to them, maybe maybe you'll do this. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah, looking for some sort of unknown scapegoat, because the professional mouthpiece of God has been silent. And so they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble, this calamity for us? Again, same word. What do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? What? What people are you from? This just breaks my heart. I don't, I don't care how long he's been on the ship. I don't care if it's just been the day. I don't care. They have no idea who he is. They have no idea where he's from. They know he got on board at Joppa. But the professional mouthpiece, the, literally the professional prophet of God in the court of the king has never said one word about God 
about Jerusalem, about where he's from, about anything. Could you imagine? I mean, stretch for just a moment. Stretch your imagination. Can you imagine being surrounded by people who don't know God at all and are in desperate need of him? They're struggling. They're lost. And they've never heard anything from you about him. Can you, can you stretch that much? To picture being an ambassador. It's literally your whole job, an ambassador of God and being so disconnected that it seems natural to say nothing. I don't ever want to get to that point, do you? But wait, I do that all the time. I do that all the time. And now we're back to, yeah, everything about the book of Jonah is going, really? Seriously? You really want to get upset with Jonah for doing this? Beloved, just, just like Jonah, sometimes, sometimes we can be so much more comfortable voicing our complaints and our fears and our frustrations than we are with voicing our hope in the Lord and our desire to seek and save the lost. We can spend so much time explaining why we're frustrated with the lost and so little time sharing why we so desperately desire to love them well. What do you do? Where are you from? What's, what's, who are you? And he answered, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord. Okay, you'll note again, that's a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's, that's translating the literal name Yahweh. And here, this is one of these times where it's important. Because I am a Hebrew and I worship Yahweh. That's my God. You may worship Marduk. I worship Yahweh. Which is a joke in and of itself, isn't it? He's literally saying, I'm a Hebrew and I fear and follow Yahweh. The God of heaven who made the sea and the land. Is that, yeah, is that an accurate description of how he's been doing? He's been, he's been doing a great job of this so far, right? The only thing, the only interaction we have from him and the Lord so far is God telling him to do something and him going no and genuinely trying to run the opposite direction from God. And he's like, I fear and follow Yahweh. You go, no. You fear his grace and you are running the opposite direction from following God. Suddenly he's Joe devout. He's like, let me speak eloquently. God doesn't tend to be impressed by eloquent expressions of faith that aren't being lived out. I think of Isaiah where, where the Lord says, these people come near me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So, eh, a little underimpressed with their mouth lippings. You can talk a good talk all you want, but eloquent prayers, eloquent expressions, if it's not reflective of what's actually going on. You know what? We'll talk more about that next week when Jonah gives a beautiful prayer and God responds. Jonah, verse, chapter 1, verse 9, he said, I'm a Hebrew and I fear and I follow Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. And this terrified them in part because they might go, ooh, I've heard of that one. I've heard of that God. And they asked, what have you done? What did you do? And they knew he was running away from Yahweh because he's finally gotten around to telling them this. They probably heard of Yahweh. They're like, wait, this is the God who parted the Red Sea. This is the God who decimated the mighty 
army and chariots of Egypt. This is the God who leveled the impregnable city of Jericho. And you made him mad? Are you nuts? You made him mad at you and then you jumped on my ship? I don't want to be anywhere near you in case the lightning bolt ricochets after it hits you. What on earth are you doing? The sea was getting rougher and rougher, and so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Somebody's got to do something. If we smack you, will God be happy? What are, you, what are we supposed to do? Somebody should be doing something, and you're not doing anything. It's not like you're praying or anything. Why isn't Jonah praying? Why isn't he repenting? Well, he's been sleeping, but why isn't he... Why isn't he praying now? Why isn't he repenting? Pardon me? He knows what the answer is going to be. He's like, why should I pray? I've been actually literally running away from that. I know what I'm supposed to do. Why don't you repent? You mean turn around and do what I'm supposed to do? Yeah, well, the whole point was I turned around to do what I wasn't supposed to do. Why do you sometimes, very sometimes, I know, I know you're very good at this, but why do you sometimes not repent? I'm going to I'm going to go on on a limb. It's Pastor Kevin Lim. I'm going to argue sometimes you don't repent cuz you're not done sinning. You don't want to stop doing what you're doing. You're treating that person badly. I know. Should you repent? Probably. Are you going to? No. I still want to poke him with a stick. I, I still want to take heroin. I still want to cheat on my spouse. I still want to cheat on my taxes. I still want this bitterness. Because at least I can control the bitterness better than I can control pain. And if the bitterness goes away, all I've got left is pain. I'm not done sinning yet. He doesn't want to repent. What should we do to, to you to make the sea calm down for us? Can we? What do we do to, to control the sea? He says, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Finally, Jonah's being noble. He's willing to give up his own life to save theirs. Actually, would repentance have maybe worked here? Is it possible that if you went, what do you need to do to me? Nothing I need to do to me. Lord, I'm sorry. I'll go to Nineveh. Could you let me off the next stop? Would that have worked? I don't know. I don't know. Because we'll never know. You know why? Because Jonah would literally rather die than stop what he was doing. Tell me you cannot relate. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. I love that. They're better than he is. We're all going to die. I would rather die than repent. And they go, we'd rather die than throw you overboard. Let's at least try. Let's at least keep trying. 
We may die, but we're going to keep trying. Besides, I don't know if I want to make Yahweh more angry. But they couldn't. They couldn't get to shore, and the sea grew even wilder than before. So then, I love this, they cried out to Yahweh. He didn't. They do. I love that. They cried out to Yahweh. Not, not the man of God, not Jonah. He hasn't talked to him yet. But the pagans cried out to Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, they call him by name. Please do not let us die for taking this man's life like he's telling us to. Don't hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, just in the off chance he is. For you, O oh Yahweh, have done as you have pleased. Think about that. Pagans prayed. Jonah didn't. Pagans prayed to our God. The man of our God didn't. Pagans prayed to our God for forgiveness. Jonah didn't. Pagans acknowledged our God's sovereignty. But Jonah didn't. Pagans, pagans, pagans accepted that Yahweh is the one who has authority here. He does. They acknowledge his will is the one that's done. He does. But God's prophet says, I think maybe I can thwart it. I think maybe I can, I can outdo God's will. Pagans stumbling around the track, not even having a clue that they were even in a race, suddenly have a vision of the finish line and are moving toward it. Pagans are now calling on God What was it that Scott read earlier from 1 Peter? Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Help me out here. Isn't that exactly the opposite of what Jonah did? Live such good lives. Be so overt among the pagans. Even if they accuse you of being guilty, they'll still glorify God. And Jonah's like, I'm living no life in front of the pagans. And they say, I don't know, maybe this guy is innocent and we're going to glorify God in spite of Jonah. But because God still used Jonah. He still used Jonah. Used him in spite of himself. Used Jonah doing something terribly wrong horribly selfish, horribly worldly to draw these pagans in. It's like, you won't reach those pagans? Okay, how about these pagans? We're going to reach these pagans. You going to help me with that? No. No, I'm still going to use you to do it. Which I love. God doesn't need you to do his will. Does he? He needs you to accomplish his will? No. He wants you to be part of it. He loves you. If you can wrap your head around that, you avoid the twin errors of the most extreme forms on the spectrum. The extreme hyper, hyper Calvinist over here going, God is so other and so separate and so God that he's almost deist. He doesn't re- I mean, he loves you, but it's more of a philosophical thing. He, you can't have a connection with him. In fact, that kind of personal thing is anthropomorphic and it's wrong. Or the rabid Arminians over on this side who sit there and go, well, I mean, God is still kind of playing catch-up, and he could really use your help. So if, if you don't reach out to them, those people aren't going to be saved. 
It's all on you, buddy. Somewhere in the middle is God going, no, no, no. It's all me. And I'd like you to be part of it. I'd like you to be my mouthpieces. And I seem to remember a verse that says, and if you don't, I might just use the rocks and trees to grow out. I'd rather it be you guys. So, the sailors took Jonah and they threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. And I love, again, remembering what Jesus did later. He goes, like, I don't need to throw nobody overboard. I just go, shh. And the sea goes, oh, that's right, sorry. But if you're these pagan sailors with Jonah, what's your take on this? We pray to Marduk, and the sea gets louder. We pray to Molech, and the sea gets worse. We pray to Ishtar, and the sea grows even stronger still. We pray to Yahweh. We throw a guy overboard who made Yahweh angry, and the raging sea goes, Is it any wonder we're told at this point The men greatly feared Yahweh and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and they made vows to him. And I know I keep saying his name, but it's because it's so crucially important that they didn't just, they didn't just make sacrifice to a God or to this Lord. They said, not Marduk, not Molech, not Ishtar, Yahweh. And I make sacrifices to him and I make vows to him. And I love that the writer is saying here, He's saying here that after begging for help fruitlessly from their gods, these guys gave all the glory to our God, to God alone. And not only a thank you, but they made vows. They said, you're the kind of God I think we need to be following. You are. To use a modern vernacular, they didn't just go, wow, that one worked great. They were converted in spite of, of the guy whose whole job was to help with that. God still made himself known in spite of Jonah instead of through Jonah. Jonah has officially been outdone by the boat itself and now by the sort of pagans that he was supposed to be reaching out to and and now by fish because the Lord provided. Yahweh provided. That's a huge word that I want you to remember for the rest of this book. Provided. As a mnemonic device, maybe it'll help to remember that that word in Hebrew is manna. Yahweh manned him a great fish, not a whale, we'll talk about that next week, a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights, which doesn't sound like any fun. But I'm going to say two quick things. Number one, it was a provision. I'm going to cheat and say in chapter 2 you find out he was drowning. The fish saved his life. It was not because God was angry with him that he sent the fish. It's because God loved him and showed him mercy that he sent the fish. He provided the fish. I know there's a lot of things in your life you may look at and go, I'm struggling to see this gift fish as a gift fish, this unpleasant thing that has happened can't guarantee this but maybe it's worth stopping and thinking every once in a blue moon about this thing that you're going i hate this thing maybe stop every once in a while and take a deep breath and go wait is this manna 
This isn't what I asked for. It's not what I would have liked. But I think it just saved my life. I think this just did a good thing. I think this was a blessing, even though it's an unpleasant one. Is this, is this a gift fish? Maybe I should be praising God instead of shaking my fist and asking for it to go away. But second, second, maybe this is quietly more crucial one. The fish is more obedient than Jonah because the fish did what it was supposed to do. God sent Jonah to Nineveh. He goes, no. God sent a, a, a wind, and the wind went, okay. God sent a fish, and the fish said, okay. Let's do a tally, shall we? The ship is smarter than Jonah. The sailors are more devout and faithful to, than Jonah. They are more devout and faithful to Yahweh than Jonah. And now the fish is more obedient than Jonah. What are we supposed to learn from that? When we are absolutely certain that we are absolutely doing it right, or when we are resistant to doing it, but we know that we've got good reasons for resisting. Fish, pagan sailors, there's the ship, there's the wind that are all doing better than Jonah. Maybe stop and go, Lord, show me my heart. Search me, oh Lord. Point it out in me. I don't want any wicked way bouncing around in there that I'm not even aware of or that I'm trying not to think about. What is God's priority in this book so far? Jonas has been to avoid talking to God, to avoid facing God, because he doesn't want to save the people he doesn't like. What's God's priority? Rule of thumb, that should probably be our priority. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for your word that never changes. I thank you this isn't just a fish story. I thank you that this is history. I thank you that this is something that you have allowed to happen so that we can look at this today even and say, oh, that's right. So I pray, Father, help us. Help us to be moved by your word, but I pray help us to be changed by your spirit, working your word into our hearts. Help us to be your people in your world as your ambassadors. In Jesus' name, amen.